There's a show um, on NBC that is called The Good Place. I don't know how many of you have, have seen this show, um, but the main character, who's uh, uh, right there in, in the orange shirt, um, her, her name is Eleanor Shellstrop on the show. Um, she wakes up at the very beginning of this, this show um, in a waiting room, and she's invited into this office where a man named Michael uh, tells her that she has died and that she is now in the good place. Um, and she says that, that he says, tells her that the reason that she's here is because she has lived a good enough life on earth, and here is her reward. She is now a part of the good place. Well, Eleanor, uh, even in that first episode, quickly realizes that she's there by mistake, um, that she wasn't supposed to be in the good place, that actually they were, that she had the there was a name mixed up and everything, and you can watch the first episode if you're interested in finding out more. Um, and all kinds of kind of hilarious and interesting things uh, follow from this premise. Um, I can't say much more about the show, um, or I would give a lot of it away, uh, because there's a lot of interesting uh, twists and turns in it. But one of the interesting things about just the, the premise of this show, The Good Place, is that while on Earth, every human being is continually earning points by doing good things or losing points by doing bad things. And, and so in, in the show, when the person dies, their total point tally is all added up and they decide whether or not this person has enough points to make it into the good place or if they fall short and they have to go to the bad place. Well, it's interesting, it's, it's, it's a show and you'll, you'll see if you actually watch the show that there's a lot of um, actually making fun of this whole, whole concept of, of the afterlife. But the reality is there are a lot of people in our world who actually have that very view of the afterlife. That if you're, good, if you're a good enough person on earth, you'll go to heaven. That if you can just do enough good things, yeah, I'm a relatively good person, I'm, I'm going to make it into the good place. And, but then if you are a really bad person, if you've done a lot of bad things, then of course then that person is going to go to the bad place or to hell. Now, other people in our society don't believe in an afterlife at all. Um, they think that this life is all there is, and when we die, then we're just in the ground, and that's it. There are others who basically believe that everyone will go to heaven um, when they die. That, that sort of it's just everybody's in, in and, and there is no hell. There's no, there's no potential problem. Well, the Christian understanding of heaven and hell is actually different from all of those ideas. <laughs> It's not, it's not any of those. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that there is a reality beyond death and that some people will spend this eternity in heaven and others will spend it in hell. But we don't get to heaven by earning points through doing good deeds and, and hell isn't just a place for really bad people either. The Christian understanding of heaven and hell is actually quite different as we're going to see today. Uh, this fall, we've been going through a, a sermon series called Reasons for Faith. Uh, we've been looking at this question, what reasons are there to believe that the Christian faith is true? And we've been looking at sort of some of the key elements of the Christian faith and why to believe them, and also some of the, some of the reasons sometimes people don't believe in the Christian faith. And so we've looked at the existence of God, why to believe that God even exists. There, the authority of the Bible. Uh, we've looked at the divinity of Christ, why we believe that Christ is really God in the flesh. 
and why we believe each of these things. Last week, um, Brandon spoke on the problem of evil and suffering, uh, which can often be a barrier to believing in God, to believing in the Christian faith, and, and how we can still believe even in the spite of the reality of suffering and evil in our world. Well, today we're going to be looking at the Christian teaching on heaven and hell, and that's uh, my, my title today. It's a little provocative title, right? We don't always talk just about straight up heaven and hell, um, but the reality is that the, the, the teaching, the Christian teaching on heaven and hell is actually something that can be a real barrier to a lot of people, uh, that people have a hard time Again, embracing kind of what the Bible teaches on this topic. And so we're going to talk today a little bit about why we should believe in an afterlife at all. Why should we believe that actually there is more than just this life in comparison to what a lot of people in our society believe. But also why we should believe specifically in the Christian understanding of both heaven and hell. Um, And so the text we're going to be focusing on today and helping us think, think, think through this is from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16 Uh, verses 19 to 31. And this passage is actually a parable that Jesus told. Um, A parable is basically a story, a fictional story that that Jesus told, but it had a very particular point to it. Um, And so because it's a parable, it's not meant to be an actual literal description of an event that happened, or we we shouldn't press it too hard for the details. But there's a lot in this parable that helps us understand some of the key elements of what Scripture does teach about the reality of heaven and hell. So um, I'm going to read our passage for us. We'll have the the verses on the screen as well behind me. So Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us that is living and active. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear your word this morning as we tackle and, and look into the reality, the reality of eternity, 
um, and what hangs in the balance there, Lord. And so speak to us now, God, um, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we look at, at the specific teaching of um, the Christian teaching on heaven and hell and how this text might um, kind of shed light on that, I want to start by actually looking at reasons to believe in life after death itself. You know, even before we get to talking about um, heaven and hell, why should we even believe that there is a reality of life after death, that, that, that things don't just end here when we die? Well, actually, over the span of human history, um, the vast majority of human cultures and individuals have believed in some kind of life after death. Um, different cultures have had different ideas of what that might look like, but there's been this kind of constant sense throughout history that, that there's more than just our existence here on earth. But now, kind of in, in recent years, there is, in our increasingly secular world, more and more people are denying the existence of anything beyond our physical universe. And so that means that many people today deny any kind of life after death, that, that this is all there is, this universe, and, and so this is it when we die. But the interesting thing is that even though that's true, I think that most people will acknowledge one of the, the, the fir- this first reason to believe in life after death, which is that we all have an inner longing for something more than this life can provide. That we all have this inner longing for something more than this life. Think about that. We have a longing for justice, right? A lot of us have a longing that, that things would be made right, and, and yet this world is full of injustice. Even the, as hard as we try to make a, 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 a fair and just and perfect world, guess what? We fail constantly. And yes, there's this, there's this longing for justice that we have. We have this longing to, to be fully known and loved and accepted. We all have that longing. And yet, every human relationship in this life just doesn't quite satisfy it perfectly, does it? You know, we, we, we struggle in our relationships, and we have this longing, though, for this perfection. We have a longing for more time. Can I get an amen on that? Right? We're always wishing that we have more time in the day or more time in the year, more time in our life to do what we want to do, to, to learn what we want to learn, and yet it just feels like we, we never ha- quite have enough time. We have this longing, actually, for eternity, for all, for time to go on and on, to where we can actually rest in, in the reality of eternity. And so we have these longings in us for something more than what this world can provide. But the question is, what do these longings point to? Well, in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. He says, A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. There are these desires that people, and there's something to fulfill them. And so he goes on to say, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That we have, we have this, inbound, this inborn desire for these things, and yet our world doesn't satisfy them. And so Lewis says, 
every other desire, there's something that satisfies it, even if we don't get it. But here, we don't have that. And so there must be something else. There must be another world that actually will satisfy those desires that are built into us. So one reason to believe in life after death is that this inner longing for something more than this life actually points to the existence that there is this something more, that there is an eternal life beyond our physical death. Now, another reason to believe in life after death is that the Bible clearly teaches that there is life after death. Now, of course, this this reason will only be persuasive if you actually believe that the Bible should be our authority for what to believe. We looked at this question actually a few weeks ago um, at the question of why the Bible should be our authority, why we can trust it, why we can believe that it is actually God's word. And um, you can go to our website and listen to that sermon if you missed it. Okay, so I'm not going to go into all of that today um, or if you want a refresher on that. But if we're, if we're coming with the expectation that, yeah, God's word, the Bible actually speaks truthfully, then we see that throughout the Bible, there is this teaching that death is not the end. Um, in our scripture reading that, that Eddie read earlier from Re- Revelation 20, in verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And so this verse, it it teaches that that those who have died will one day after death be brought before God for judgment. And there will be a continued existence for them. In John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus himself taught this. Uh, He says there, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What's Jesus talking about there? Life after death. The dead will hear and those who hear will live. But Jesus goes on to, to, to explain more about this in verses 20 and 29 when he says, For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So the Bible and Jesus himself teaches that there will be an existence after death for all people who have died, which means everyone, right? And except for those who are living at the time when Christ returns. And so, but, but he also t- teaches that this existence will be different depending on the person. As Jesus says, some will rise to live, others will rise to be condemned. And so the judgment um, of the dead that's spoken in Revelation also, in Revelation 20, it, it, it results in very different results, as you heard in that passage, depending on what is written in God's books. And so the way that we often talk about these two, these two realities, this, this reality of life after death, is in the language of heaven and hell. So I want to turn now to the Bible's teaching on heaven and hell. What, what specifically does the Bible teach on, on these two ideas? Well, there are a lot of different verses and passages in the Bible that speak about heaven and hell. Uh, we don't have time to examine all of those today. So I want to focus, actually, on the passage that I read earlier from Luke chapter 16, 
Um, and as I mentioned, again, that, that passage is a parable that Jesus taught. It's a fictional story, so it's not meant to give a literal description of what heaven and hell will be like, necessarily. But Jesus told parables to communicate important truths. And when we look at this parable in the context of the rest of Scripture, we see some really significant things that emerge. And the first is that our eternal destiny is connected to our lives here on earth. That our eternal destiny is connected to our lives here on earth. There's a connection between what happens now and where we will spend eternity. In Jesus' parable, this rich man is living in luxury, right? He's, he, is, um, he is just rolling in the dough in, in his wealth. And at the same time, there's this beggar named Lazarus who is lying at the rich man's gate. And he's longing just to eat the scraps from the rich man's table. And so in the parable, both of these individuals die. And Lazarus says, goes to heaven, says that the angels carried him to Abraham's side, while the rich man ends up in hell. Now, the parable doesn't explicitly say why each one of them ends up where they do. But when you look at how the rich man acts in hell, you begin to see why he's there. In verse 24, the rich man, while he's in hell, he calls out to Abraham He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about what the rich man says here. First of all, he he knows Lazarus' name, right? He calls him by name, send Lazarus, which means that he knew who this beggar was at his gate. He knew him by name, actually, but he ignored him all throughout his life. But here's the other interesting thing is that that this rich man, even in the afterlife, he still treats Lazarus as an inferior, right? He, He expects Lazarus to be his servant and bring some water to him to help cool off his tongue. Later on, he he says, you know, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to go tell my brothers about this. You know, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to do this, send Lazarus to do that. This rich man is literally burning in hell, but he hasn't been humbled at all, right? He is still full of pride, thinks that he can order this other guy around, even when this guy is standing at, at Abraham's side. He treats Lazarus exactly like he treated him when he was alive. The rich man is not repentant. In fact, it's also interesting, the rich man never even asks to get out of hell. Right? He just sort of, he's he's there, he says, send Lazarus to cool off my tongue. But he doesn't have any desire to actually go over to Abraham's side. And so it's clear from, from the rich man He did not worship God above all things in his life. In fact, he he worshipped wealth. He worshipped luxury. And he actually expected other people like Lazarus to worship and serve him. The rich man chose to reject God in this life. And that choice was projected out into eternity 
in eternity apart from the God that he rejected while here on earth. And so this is another aspect of the Bible's teaching on heaven and hell, which is that hell is an eternal separation from God, which we choose here on earth. That at its heart, that is what hell is. It is an eternal separation from God, but it's a separation that we choose here on earth. In his fictional book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, um, again, love quoting from C.S. Lewis today. It just happened to be some of the passages that, that felt like connected with this message. But, but Lewis describes this very kind of imaginative picture in that book. A picture of heaven and hell. And again, it's not really meant to be taken really literally, but, but it really is very insightful in the way he describes it. And at one point in this book, he describes a busload of people from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. And they are urged to leave behind the sins that have trapped them in hell. But they refuse. You see, they have become so identified with their sins, their idols, their addictions, that they would rather hold on to them in hell than give them up for heaven. Elsewhere, C.S. Lewis writes that hell actually begins within us while we're here on earth. And that when we die, that hell just continues on forever and ever. Here's, another, here's a quote from what he says. He says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell, unless it is nipped in the bud. All that are in hell, choose it. Now, the sobering reality is that the Bible teaches that actually apart from God, all of us have the seeds of hell growing inside of us. That we all choose to worship and serve things other than God. That we all want to rule our own lives rather than submit to God's rule. And so left to ourselves, guess what? The eternal destiny of all of humanity would be an eternity apart from God. We would all choose hell. But God loves us too much to leave us there. Thanks be to God. God came into our world to save us from the hell that we deserve, to free us from the hell that is growing inside of us that would result in eternal hell. And he did it by taking the judgment of hell upon himself. On the cross, Jesus experienced separation from the Father in our place. He bore our sin for us. And when he cried out, it is finished, he opened the door for all of humanity to be rescued from hell and be given the free gift of entering heaven and eternity in the presence of God. He paid it all, as we're going to sing later on. And so what is the, the Bible's, the heart of the Bible's teaching about heaven? That heaven is eternal life with God 
achieved by Jesus Christ alone and given freely to all who believe in him. Heaven has been achieved by Jesus Christ alone. No one except Jesus deserves heaven. In, in the language of that show I was talking about earlier, The Good Place, the only person who would earn enough points to get into the good place is Jesus. The population of heaven would be him alone if it's up to what we can earn. And so Jesus alone has achieved eternal life with God. But because of Jesus' perfect life and then substitutionary death in our place and powerful resurrection, he is now able to give the free gift of heaven to anyone who will receive it. To anyone who will receive it. Going back to our parable, what are the distinguishing characteristics of Lazarus? Right? Did you wonder that? Like, why did this guy get to go up into to heaven? Why did he get to be at Abraham's side? Well, think about who Lazarus is. He's a beggar. He's in need. And he knows it. And what does his name mean? Notice that the rich man's not given a name. His identity is being rich. That's who he is. That's his identity. But Lazarus, he has a name. And the name Lazarus means one whom God helps. That's his identity. The heart of of Lazarus' identity has nothing to do with what he has accomplished or what he did in his life. It's not about the good deeds that he did. It's not about how poor he was even. It's... The fact that his identity is one whom God helped. He is one who has received the help of God. There's a reason that Jesus named him that in the parable. He's a beggar in need of mercy, in need of grace. And that is our only hope of entering heaven too. To acknowledge that we too are beggars. That we do not deserve heaven that we are completely in need of God's mercy, that we too are in need of his help. And when we hold on to the, to the promise of God, of eternal life that God has given us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, guess what? We can know that that future will be ours too. Now I want to acknowledge that talking about this, the reality heaven and hell, it's weighty, right? Just last night, I was was reading a Bible story to my kids, and Lucas started asking about the two thieves who were crucified next to Jesus on the cross. And so I started to tell him, you know, the story from from Luke's gospel about how, how one of those thieves asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom and and Jesus gave him this promise today, you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that amazing? This guy's going to be in heaven. And then Lucas turned to me and said, what about the other thief? What happened to him? And suddenly I was faced with the irony that I was going to be preaching about heaven and hell the next morning, and here my son was asking about what happened to the other thief who didn't believe in Jesus. And the incredibly difficult reality of of explaining hell to my six-year-old son. 
And it's a sad truth to have to explain to someone. It's a sobering truth. But I did. I, I told him that those who don't want God's forgiveness, who, who reject him, who refuse to believe, that all we know from what Scripture says is that they're going to be separated from God. That's a sobering truth. But then I told him that God doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. And that he wants everyone to be in heaven with him. That he died for the sins of, of the whole world. And, and that we can know that he could know that he is going to be in heaven with Jesus forever. Because Jesus saved him. And he saved me. And he saved you. And he's forgiven us when we trust him. When we put our lives in his hands. And that is really good news, isn't it? But here's the amazing thing. It's not only good news for the future, after we die. It's actually also good news for here and now. Because we talked about, about C.S. Lewis's idea that hell begins growing inside of us, right? It will project out into eternity unless something nips it in the bud. Well, the same thing is true of heaven. That when we receive God's grace and forgiveness in our lives, we are given the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And the Holy Spirit begins to transform us and grow in us the character of heaven right now within our hearts. And it doesn't just stay there. God begins to bring that reflection of heaven not only into our hearts, but then out into the world through us. He wants other people to get a taste of that eternal life so that they'll want it for themselves too. And so here's what God wants. When we receive this incredible gift, he wants to bring that same gift to the Lazaruses in our midst. To the people that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives who are broken, who are laying in, in, in trouble, people around us. As he works through our acts of, of love and mercy and justice, rather than staying behind our gates like that rich man did. He wants us to get out, out of the gates, to go into the world, to find people who desperately need to hear about his love too, so they can know him. But he also wants to bring that same good news to the rich men in our midst. To open their eyes to see the path that they're heading down. To their idolatry and self-centeredness. And to actually show them the freedom that comes from acknowledging that we're all beggars in need of God's mercy. Which could then change and transform them to showing compassion to their neighbors as well. So as we close, I just want to ask you a question. How is God calling you to respond to this? Maybe you're here today, and you're still kind of skeptical of all this talk about heaven and hell, about the afterlife. If that's you, 
Is it possible that God may have led you here today to open your eyes to the fact that he wants to give you more than you can expect and more than maybe even you believe, but that he wants to give you this glorious life with him? You are made for more than this life. And if you sit with that for a little while, I think you'll begin to see and know that it's true. You're made for something more. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to open up eternal life for you, both in the future and also here and now. And so I want to invite you, if you're here today, acknowledge your need. Receive his gift. Trust him. You can do it today. If you want to talk more about that with me after the service, I'd love to do that with you. Now, for many of us, we, we have acknowledged our need, and, and we're trusting in Jesus for the hope of heaven. But maybe today, God has shined his spotlight on an area in your life that's more characteristic of hell than heaven. That he's shown you maybe there's something in you that actually is that sort of thing that's the seed of something that could grow into a tendency, a habit, an aspect of your character that God wants to nip in the bud, as C.S. Lewis put it, and begin to transform you. Maybe there's a Lazarus in your life that you've been ignoring and shutting out of your life. Whatever it is, God is calling you to not feel really bad about that and discouraged, but to just confess it to him. Say, God, I'm in need. Forgive me. Cleanse me. To come as a beggar and ask him once again to forgive you and change you. And is there something that God wants to do in you or through you as a part of bringing the kingdom of heaven into this world? In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. We pray for God to do that, to bring his kingdom and his will that is being done and is true in heaven into earth. And we want to be a part of that. We invite God to bring his heavenly kingdom in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors. So how is God calling you to be a part of that? After I pray, we're going to sing a response song that is very familiar. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid our debt in full, freeing us from the prospect of hell. That's the only reason we can have the hope of heaven, because Jesus paid it all. And as we rejoice in what Christ has done for us, let us live in that freedom today, even as we look forward to the day when we will enter the fullness of God's eternal life to enjoy forever and ever. Let's pray, and I'll invite the worship team to come up as, as I pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided everything necessary for us to have a sure hope and confidence that we will be with you for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you that, that you sent your son, Jesus, into the world to do what we could never do, to live the perfect life, to die a death for us, and to rise to new life so that we can know that we can be invited into that same life too. 
God, you are so gracious to us. We deserve hell. We deserve to be separated from you. We are constantly running away from you, and yet you continually call us back and forgive us and cleanse us and remind us that you've paid it all. Help us, Lord, to bring this message to the whole world around us so that those in our midst, God, would also know the freedom that comes from acknowledging that we're just beggars and to receive the good news of life that you provided for us in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.